Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Ormo campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. Those letters that you write are going to be a blessing to someone. There's something about receiving a letter or a word of affirmation that I think can just spur us on to that next season, that next moment that can get us over that next hurdle that we have. You know, there's something really unique about receiving a letter these days. I uh, decided this year that in the vein of our series that I'd actually try and write my wife a Mother's Day letter and I realised it's something I can't actually ever remember doing. Thanks, Kane. I can't ever remember doing. I'm not, I'm not a big letter writer, but something about expressing your heart in words that someone can then take and keep, that is uh, really powerful. I remember back in the year 2000, right at the end of the year 2000, Chrissy and I just started dating. And um, I decided to nick off to Canada for five weeks to visit a friend. And uh, while I was there, I thought, you know, it'll be all right, it's only five weeks. We've been dating for about nine months. Well, every single day, I'd wake up, I'd sneak into the office of the people's house that I was staying at, I'd turn on the modem, the dial-up modem, hear it make that crackling noise and hope that no one would wake up with it and I'd log on to my Yahoo mail just to see if there was another email or a letter from Chrissy. And there's something really cool, isn't there, about receiving a letter from somebody that we just love and that we just seek to hear their thoughts and their words and their affirmations. And it's like that for the churches that Jesus writes to. The letter that we're going to read today comes from Revelation chapter 3. And it's a letter that Jesus writes to a church in a place called Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia, Philadelphia is not the US city that most of us would instantly think of. Philadelphia was a young church that would be found today in modern-day central Turkey. I don't know if you can... I think Philadelphia is now just a ruin, and there's not a lot of ruin to be found, but Philadelphia was a young city, and Philadelphia had a young church. And the church in Philadelphia had multiple challenges that confronted it. It was confronted and challenged culturally. Many commentators wonder whether Philadelphia was actually a city that was built as a missionary city. Now we think of missionaries in the Christian faith, but this was a missionary city in the uh, desire to actually further Greek culture and Hellenistic thought and worship. So it wasn't a missionary city in a Christian sense, but culturally it was designed to be able to speak to the grandeur of Rome and to expand Greek thinking and culture. So the church in Philadelphia had a cultural challenge, but the church in Philadelphia also had a religious challenge. You see, if you were part of the Roman Empire, emperor worship was everything. You you had to ascribe and bow the knee to the Roman emperor. If you did that, whoever you chose to worship after that, well, that was okay, that was up to you. But that didn't really fit the early Christian framework as it doesn't fit ours today because Jesus says you have no other gods before me. So the early Christian church wasn't going to bow their knee and worship the emperor of Rome. They were going to bow their knee and worship Jesus. And so this young, small church was confronted with a religious reality that brought persecution to them. 
More than that, there was, we find about in the letter that there's a large Jewish uh, group that resides in Philadelphia. And while the story of the two faiths uh, was similar to a point, this new church is a church that declares that there was a man named Jesus who died on a cross and rose again, and he is the Son of God and the true Messiah. And so that put them at odds with those that didn't claim that Jesus was the Messiah and that his resurrection never happened. So this church in Philadelphia is dwarfed by the cultural challenge of the city in which they're in. They're dwarfed by the religious challenges. And they're also challenged geographically because Philadelphia, we find out, is a city that was prone to earthquakes. Just out of interest, show of hands, has anyone ever been caught in an earthquake? Wow. I'd love to talk to you guys later and find out what that's like because I just can't imagine being in a place where the ground shakes. But you go to ancient Philadelphia, it was in a place that experienced numerous earth tremors. And about 50 years before this letter was written, a significant earthquake that decimated much of the city of Philadelphia. <coughs> Don't you love when I do that? There was a significant earthquake. And, and engineering and infrastructure and architecture, even though grand and wonderful in part, didn't have the same foundation that it does today. And so Philadelphia was left in ruins from this significant earthquake. And so they lived with this background and this threat constantly of the ground shaking. And so Jesus writes a letter to his church in Philadelphia. What we know is it probably wasn't a big church. It probably wasn't a significant church in terms of size. It probably was a church of only 40 or 50 at this time. So it certainly wasn't dominant in its size, but Jesus writes these words in a letter to his church. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I'll make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I'll make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I'll also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come to the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I'll make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I'll write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I'll also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, on my hearing, uh, I have multiple key rings now because I hate bulk in my pocket. But on my key ring is a master key to Gateway Mackenzie. Now, when I was young on staff, I thought this would be a great thing to get a hold of because, you know, like there's something about saying, I've got a key to the church that uh, makes you feel like you're someone special. And someone gave me this. If you've ever been to Gateway Mackenzie, uh, there are hundreds of doors. And I had a key that opened every single one of them. Now, that was really cool at the start. The power of that felt somewhat special, but the responsibility started to get a little bit 
overwhelming. I've now got a habit that I suss out, if I'm ever working there, how many people are left in the building. And I make sure I exit before the last one. Because if you're stuck closing up that place, it is a nightmare. But I have a master key. It opens every door. It opens every cupboard. Only a few people get the master key and it comes with great power and responsibility. And this is a little bit of the picture that Jesus starts his letter with to the church in Philadelphia. He says this, I hold the key to the house of David. And in doing so, Jesus refers back to Isaiah 22. And Isaiah 22 is this prophetic picture where it talks about this man, Eliakim, that is going to be given the keys to the house of David. Now what that meant was Eliakim was going to be given the master key to the royal house. It was going to open every door. It was going to shut every door. Every door that Eliakim, as the administrator of the royal house, opened would stay open. And every door that he shut and locked would stay shut. Such was the power of the key that was going to be given to him. And Jesus, harking back to this picture of Isaiah 22, says, I've been given the keys to the house of David. And in doing so, what Jesus wants to say to this young church is this, I hold the key, I hold the key to every resource in heaven and on earth. Everything that is part of God's house, I have access to. What I open, no one will shut. And what I shut, no one will open. And every letter we read in Revelation starts with a fresh revelation of who Jesus is and of his power. And this picture for the church in Philadelphia is a significant one because only a few verses later, Jesus says this to them, I know that you have little strength. And so the first thing he wants to say to his church and the first thing that he wants to say to us today is this, in your weakness, discover his strength. In your weakness, discover his strength. Now I know football analogies and Mother's Day aren't great, but I'm going with it anyway. Is that all right? Because I can't think of a better one. But you don't have to love football to get this. If, if you're a rugby league fan in here, uh, the team is made up not just of the biggest blokes that you can find. It's made up of a whole bunch of different skill sets. The biggest guys on the field are known as the front rowers. They're strong. They're powerful. They're tall. They usually don't have much hair on their head. They grunt a lot. They're strong, they're manly, they're muscly. I mean, here's a picture of a front rower right here, right? If you need to imagine a front rower, I am it. Right, that is the front rower, Andrew May. There's also these little whippets known as halfbacks. Now, if you're going to picture that, skinny little sticks that snap in half, think James Bignall. He's like a halfback, right? Usually smart, but not that strong. But halfbacks are the ones with the brains, Front rowers usually don't have a lot. Again, the picture probably works right there. They're not renowned for their intelligence, even though there's some very, very smart front rowers in the game of football. But they're not known or employed for their intelligence. Their job is to run flat out at other humans, their size, and act as battering rams. Halfbacks direct the team around the field. They're quick and they're witty. Now, on a footy team, the confidence of the halfback grows... When he knows that if he gets himself in trouble, the front rowers are going to come and stand beside him and protect him. And so the lippiest halfbacks are usually the ones with the biggest front rowers. Because they know, if I say something that upsets someone else, these 
big men are going to come and stand in the way and I'll just be able to kind of slink to the back and I'll be okay. And it's a little bit of the picture of what Jesus wants to say to his church. I know you're weak. I know you're small. I know you're powerless. I know you look at all the circumstances around you and you feel like you don't have a lot. But guess what? You got me. So you can be confident. You can have great confidence because you've got me. So step forward in confidence because in your weakness, I am made strong and I make you strong. In other words, Jesus wants to say to his church and he wants to say to us, don't look at your circumstances, your situation, your abilities, but look at me. And I think there's a great lesson in this for many of us today because so often we have this internal dialogue that goes like this. I'm not smart enough, I'm not articulate enough, I don't know enough, I don't have enough history in the church, I don't know enough of the Bible, I don't have the gifts, I don't have the abilities, I can't speak well. Then people ask me questions about my faith and I stumble and I falter and I don't know what to say, I'm not quick with my words. And Jesus says, it's, it's okay, it's not actually about you. When you feel weak, look to me for your strength. The Apostle Paul writes in, in, a, in a personal testimony in the book of 2 Corinthians, a letter that he wrote to a church in Corinth. And he writes about his own journey and he talks about, and the Bible says, a thorn that he has in his flesh. In other words, he says, I've got this, this thing that follows me that I just can't get rid of and I keep telling God, get rid of it. I'll be much more effective if this thing isn't slowing me down. We don't know exactly what it is, whether it's a physical ailment or something else, but he says that he carries this thorn in his flesh. And in writing a testimony about it, he says this, three times I begged the Lord to take it away. And each time he said, my grace is all you need. You love it when we go to God and say, can you just fix this thing? And he comes back with that very Christian answer of my grace is all you need. So he says to Paul, three times Paul says, I begged the Lord to take it away. And each time he said, my grace is all you need. For my power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And maybe the only thing you need to hear today is that your usefulness to God isn't about your ability or your intellect. It's just your willingness to be available. Because in your weakness, it's his strength and power that comes through. And he says to his church in Philadelphia, I hold the keys to every resource in heaven and on earth. And right now, church, you look at yourself and you're overwhelmed by the circumstances before you, but it's all right. Because I've got your back. And maybe some of us look at the circumstances of the world we live in and we feel powerless and overwhelmed. And The whole book of Revelation points to one really important message, that Jesus wins. And so it invites us as his people to stand confidently in behind him, knowing that we don't need to cower in the corner and worry about the forces that come against us because we're on the side of the one that holds the key to every resource in heaven and on earth and all the power of heaven. So in your weakness, lean into his strength. Let me just speak to parents for a minute on Mother's Day. Because maybe the dialogue right now for you around your parenting is this. You know, I feel like I'm a failure, or I'm a fraud, or I'm not doing a very good job. 
Now, in my life, if, if there's been one great leveller, it's been becoming a parent. Uh, I stepped into parenthood. I was a youth pastor for a bunch of years before I was a parent, which meant that I was equipped to be the best parent there was and that all the things other people complained about were just complaints. So I stepped into parenting with all the youthful arrogance and confidence that you could possibly have. I learned very early on that I actually wasn't that well-resourced or equipped or anywhere near the level that I probably should be to actually take on this task of raising a child. I actually learned that before Eli was born in antenatal classes. Some of you here... Oh, no, we've got a lot of people that are... By Mother's Day next year, there are going to be prams everywhere in this church. But I did antenatal classes, as you should, and it's a good thing to do. I can remember two things from our antenatal classes. One, some guy felt the need to stand up in front of the group and share that great life hack he's discovered is that he can cook bacon and egg breakfast for his pregnant wife on their toasted sandwich maker. It's just a memory. Secondly... Then when Chrissy goes into labour, my role is support person and I should, do every, I should do lots of things to support her, like hold her hand, stroke her back, massage her, be present, be, do all that. I, I heard that, right, because I'm a smart bloke. I heard that. <laughs> so into the... I'm not going to get... Don't, don't worry, I'm not going to get too kind of graphic here, but we go into the delivery suite when uh, Eli's started to decide he wanted to make his entrance into the world and I'm just thinking, okay, what have I learnt? Four weeks, be present, be present, rub her shoulders and massage her neck. So I walk over to the bed as Chrissy's going through one of her earlier contractions and I put my hand on her shoulders and her neck and she just looks at me and says, do not touch me. <laughs> I'm a smart guy, I just said to her, no, but they said this would be really good. <laughs> I realised at that point that I probably had a few lessons to learn about what it was to be a parent. And, and some of us here, especially those that are parents of young kids, I found themselves in the same place. You know, in those early years, I was suddenly now responsible for a life that depended on me for everything. I was tired, I was overwhelmed, my life had been turned upside down. But I kind of told myself that it would be okay because this surely is the hardest phase, the baby phase, Right? Well, 19 years into the journey of parenting, I've decided that every new season is the next phase that you're looking forward to the one after. I've actually decided the greatest phase is when all the kids move out and I can buy a caravan and nick off and not have to pack for them or do their camp washing afterwards. Surely that phase is going to be a good one, right? It's not that any of these seasons are bad. It's just that all of them bring challenges where you feel ill-resourced and ill-equipped. Every season of parenting my kids, I felt out of my depth. When they were babies, when they're toddlers, when I'm battling wills against a six-year-old daughter, when I'm trying to tell my kids that they're not sick and they should go to school and they're chaining themselves to their beds. You know, when they become teenagers, the emotional journey begins. When they become young adults and suddenly it's a whole different phase of relationship. You know, I, I walk through all of those and maybe right now you're just feeling overwhelmed and under-resourced. I reckon Jesus wants to say the same thing to us in our parenting as he wants to say to the church, and that is this, in your weakness, leaning to me to be your strength. There is words to you today. Let his strength flow through your weakness. Let Jesus minister to you in your depletion and your weakness. Here's a second lesson that flows out of this that we see in the letter. 
And it's this, that even in our weakness, we can be part of advancing the kingdom of God. Now, it sounds similar, but there's a nuance in the letter. Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, I've opened a door that no one will be able to shut. Now, many commentators have looked at that and thought, what does it mean? And some have landed on that it's actually a personal limitation to step into a relationship with Jesus. And Jesus is the one that has opened the door and we're invited to step in and take hold of the life that he offers. And there's truth in that. Jesus is the one that opens the door for us to have relationship with God. But probably in the context of the letter to Philadelphia, Jesus is talking about a door that he's opened that is a missional door. In other words, it's a door that he's opening that's inviting his church to step through to see the advancement of the gospel. And here's this little church that's dwarfed by all of these other institution and cultural movements. And Jesus says, I've opened a door. No one's going to be able to shut this door. I want you to walk through it and see what happens. You know, we, we can often... I think attack evangelism the same way the church in Philadelphia probably felt about it. We can make a decision about how people are going to respond to Jesus <coughs> before we've even given them the opportunity to respond to him. You know that self-talk that says, oh, I don't think they need Jesus, or we, I know they need them, but I don't think they're going to want Jesus. And so we talk ourselves out of ever introducing people in our world to Jesus before we've ever given God the opportunity to do what he needs to do with us there as his mouthpiece. You know, the thing I've recognised in life is that sometimes those that on the outside seem the most self-assured and self-sufficient are the ones that deep down are crying for help, purpose and salvation more than others. Never say someone's no for them. Jesus says, I'm opening a door, I want you to walk through it. I want you to recognise the opportunity that's on your doorstep into a hurting, broken world. And I know you're overwhelmed by the size of everything else that surrounds you right now, but don't worry because I'm the one that holds the keys to every resource in heaven and I'm the one that's opened the door. You just step through it and you let me do my thing. Again, I just want to speak to parents for a minute. And if you can indulge me for just a moment, others, you can tune out for 30 seconds, have a little micro nap where you are, whatever you want to do, because I just want to speak for just a moment to young parents and those about to be parents. Many people ask me, we've got five kids, Chrissy and I, what, what the biggest transition was between child number what and what did it have the biggest effect on our life? And for me, the answer's always been really, really simple. It was a transition from zero to one. Because that was the moment where life turned upside down. And sure, every other child that's been added to our families has brought added complications and challenges and more tiredness and all the rest of that. But in terms of the biggest life change, it was the move from being married honeymooners to parents. And you enter this new phase out of a time of our lives, at least, where we had more financial freedom, more time, more ability to invest in our local church, more ability to do things, more, it was easy to pivot, it was easy at the last moment to take a phone call from a friend and be at a restaurant in 25 minutes and suddenly this child arrives and all of those things disappear from your life in the way that they used to be. Suddenly now those things are overtaken by tiredness and the mundaneness of routine of looking after a newborn baby. Your time is more hamstrung, you're less agile, you're less mobile and you've got less physical resources to face the world. And I speak to many people that see these years as desert years in their faith. Because it gets challenging and it gets routine and it gets mundane, but some people talk themselves into the desert years as well. 
and say this, I've actually got less to give. I've got less to offer. I've got less to be useful in. I can't serve in the ways that I used to. I'm not available like I used to be. But I just want to say this to you. In my experience, in Chrissy and my story, some of our most productive years missionally were in those early years of having kids. We had more opportunities to meet others at a similar phase of life to us. We, we established more relationships with those through daycare and school and within our community because of our children. We had more time to invest in people in different ways. And just as Jesus is saying to the church in Philadelphia, I'm opening a door for you to walk through. I reckon he wants to say to some of you that in that early phase of pairing, there's a door open for you right now. Step through it. You might actually find that this time of life where you feel least resourced might be the time where God uses you in ways more significant than ever before in your story to be a missional asset in preaching and spreading the good news of God's kingdom to a whole bunch of others that are living your story right now that need a word of hope. You see, when Jesus says that he opens a door, there's something really important we need to know, and it's this. We've got to walk through it. When the door's open, we've got to walk through it. And so we need to choose to walk through the door that Jesus is opening. It doesn't just happen. So don't look at your circumstances and decide you've got nothing to give. Why don't you start to see the world differently and step into the new opportunities that God is going to have for you. I need the band to come join me. Because there's one final encouragement in this that I think is a challenge and an encouragement to all of us, and it's this. Jesus says to his church, and let me read again from verse 11. He says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I'll make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I'll write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I'll also write on them my new name. Don't underestimate the power of those words to a church that knew what it was like to see foundations and pillars crumble under a shaking ground. Many of these people have lived through times where they've seen great architecture come crumbling down because the ground shook. And so Jesus, in speaking affirmation over his church, says this, I'm going to make you a pillar in my temple and never again will you leave it. I'm going to make you a pillar in my temple. These people lived geographically, physically in a shaky world and Jesus' promise to this new young church was, I'm going to make you pillars in my temple. Not pillars of marble or of stone, but my living temple where you, my church, will be a strong foundation that will never be shaken. Now, we live in a shaky world, a world of disruption, a world of confusion, a world with shifting ground and changing ground rules. And Jesus makes an invitation to his small church in Philadelphia to hold on to Jesus and in doing so to be anchored and made firm in the face of a changing and a challenging world. It's the thing you'd want to say to us today. You live in a shaky world. I want to anchor you into myself, into my story, into my temple. And Jesus, the one that holds the keys to every resource in heaven and on earth, invites you to be part of the strong foundation of his living temple, to be a pillar that's unmoved and unshaken, a pillar that will bring hope to a broken, hurting, messed up, shaken world. 
So Jesus says to his church, simply this, hold on, hold on. I've already won the victory and the victory is going to be yours. So hold on, don't give up. In your weakness, find your strength in me. In your weakness, step through the doors I open and see me do greater things than you could ever have dreamed or imagined. And in your weakness, hold on and I'll make you a pillar, a permanent foundation and structure in the temple that I'm building through my people. So hold on. Father God, I just want to thank you today for your encouragement to your church in Philadelphia. And in that, your encouragement to your church here in Ormo. Lord, many of us here today, maybe right now, just feel like we have so little to give, so little to offer. Maybe the self-talk our whole life has been that we're not good enough, we're not smart enough, we're not strong enough, we're not articulate enough, we don't know enough. Our, our story from our past is going to impact our capacity in the future. And Jesus, I just reckon you want to speak to some hearts this morning and say, it's actually in your weakness that I'm able to display my greatest strength. Father, would you encourage some hearts in that? But Lord, in that, give us the courage to take the next step that we need to take, not just to sit in that place, but to actually start moving forward into what you have for us. Lord, you're the one that flings the doors open. God, you don't need us to do that, but you, the one that holds every resource in heaven and on earth, is the one that opens the doors, God. Your heart for people is greater than our heart could ever be. Your desire for people to know your grace and your love and your compassion is greater than ours could ever be. But Father, as your people, would we continue to walk into the opportunities that you present to us. Lord, no matter what season of life we're in. And today, Jesus, I just want to pray for, especially all the young parents here, that they wouldn't see this time and this season as one of fruitlessness. But God, maybe for some of them, they would discover that this is their time in the eyes of your kingdom of greatest fruitfulness. So give them the courage, I pray today, Jesus, to walk through the doors that you have for them. Awesome. Hey, uh, I just want to, as we finish, why don't we all stand together? I, I just want to pray for those of us that are about to, uh, in the next, well, if I go nine months, I'll get it right. Next nine months, bring a child into the world. Now, I don't know, some of you be here and may not have wanted to announce that, so I'm not going to ask you to identify that, but maybe if that's you, your uh, spouse might just want to take your hand or someone that knows that because I just love to pray a blessing over you in this time. Um, let's do that. Lord, I want to pray for all those parents-to-be. Lord, I thank you for the gift of God that is growing inside of them. Lord, in new life, we see the ultimate picture of your creativity and of your grace and of your goodness. God, and I know that as each of them gets to gaze in this next season on a brand new life, they're going to see you in a whole new and different way. But Father, right now, I just want to pray your hand of protection over them. I want to pray your hand of blessing over them, sustain them, care for them. Lord, continue to grow those children inside of them. And Lord, even now in the womb, may they know your goodness, God. Lord, we look forward to Mother's Day 2023 when this church would have grown with a whole bunch of prams. We get to celebrate with a whole bunch of new families, brand new life. So your blessing, we pray over them today in Jesus' name.
Hey, we're going to sing one final song this morning as we close our service. We have a wonderful team that's just Hannah and Ron over there that are going to make coffees for you today. Now there's an order here, right? If you're a bloke and you get in the front of the line, I'm going to send the front rows after you. Because we want to make sure all the mums get looked after first. So why don't you go and look after all the, actually not just the mums, all the ladies get first dibs at the coffee today, right? So uh, make sure you go and, you can go and order one, right, for someone, but they're going to put a flower and a love heart and a pink lid on it. So if you drink it, we'll find you and I'll send the front rolls after you. But no, seriously, everyone would love a coffee. Go do that. There's a photo booth. You can get a photo with your family this morning as you go. And again, I just want to really thank and honour the team, especially Kylie. It's backed up after a massive camp to put on an awesome Mother's Day morning tea for us to enjoy this morning. So why don't we lift our hearts and our voices in worship and then enjoy some time together. We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and we'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services because everyone who comes through our doors is welcome. You can find out more about our community and locations at gatewaybaptist.com.au.